You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Consider, friends, the final days of Socrates, as Plato relates them in the Crito. He refuses to flee Athens precisely because any protest he could articulate would happen in the language of Athenian law, and he can only name the injustice against him because Athens herself gave him the vocabulary. Or consider Jesus. En route to his own violent death, Jesus weeps for a Jerusalem that knows not the ways of peace, and his tears tell a tale of his situation as a faithful Jew, even as his lament reminds us of the prophet's freedom and responsibility to speak truth. Perhaps what makes both of these moments memorable is the tension between each one's particularity pulling against an impulse to levy something like a universal critique against the corruption of the provincial, but all for the love of the local. That tension animates the long traditions of philosophical and theological thinking, and Marsha Pally's recent book, Commonwealth and Covenant from Erdman's, explores the questions that open up when we pay attention to both poles of that dialectic rather than ignoring one in favor of the other. Christian Humanist Profiles is glad to welcome her to talk with us today about that book. Welcome to the show, Dr. Pally. Pleasure to be here and to be talking with you. Well, Commonwealth and Covenant proposes a comprehensive revision of philosophy, theology, politics, and economics in terms of dialectic, and more specifically, the dialectic between what you call situatedness and separability. So here at the outset, tell our listeners a little bit about what work those terms do in this ambitious book. Uh, Thank you. Um, I'll I'll first say that um, I don't quite think of this as a revision of philosophy and theology, but rather drawing on certain long extant theological and philosophical traditions that see our separability and our situatedness, which I'll get to, not so much in terms of a dialectic, A and B, that then work on each other to transform and become C, but rather that our situatedness and our separability are who we are simultaneously. I'll unpack that a little. So separability is a very basic term. Uh, Our ability as individuals of unique character, value, talent, to separate from the ways of past and neighbor. It is our individual value and capacity, and we are all graced with that. Situatedness is that we all also are situated in layers of relations, in communities, in families, in educational settings, economic settings, political settings, and so on. The understanding uh, in the theology and philosophy I'm relying on is that our individual selves are unique, separate, distinct selves comes into being through our relations. Think of a child. Every child develops individually. Even identical twins develop unique characteristics, life aims, goals, ways of doing things. Yet, each child develops in response and in interaction with parents, family, school, communities, 
And not only with these nearby relations, but with relations that extend out, that child's economic opportunities are determined not by people necessarily in the neighborhood. The child's educational opportunities, nutrition, health care, the tensions that family might be under, all determined by layers of relationships that may extend out even nationally and globally. So the capacity for each one of us to develop into the individual selves that we are, the individual people we are, comes through our interaction. There is no person that is not on one hand distinct and yet in a world of reciprocal impact and therefore the reciprocal responsibility for the relations that we live in. Mm -hmm. I think it's fascinating. I mean, this book's examination always keeps its roots in historically particular moments. And I want you to talk to our listeners for a moment specifically about the changes in thought that arrive with and around the Protestant Reformations. Uh, You focus on this as a moment in European history where modern preferences for separability, sometimes to the detriment of situatedness, really kind of arise. And, And even more fascinating, I think, is you tell a story about how situatedness becomes a sort of rhetorical weapon in the political and doctrinal struggles of that day. So tell our listeners about the Reformation and how it contributes to this conversation. Thank you. Uh, You've hit one of the key points of the book, Commonwealth and Covenant, which is that since we are both, all human beings are both, individuals and separate from each other and yet develop continually through life through our relations, since that is the case, we really can't get one without the other. Mm -hmm. And if we slip, uh, for various historical reasons, into too much of one or too much of the other, we get much less productive societies and much less human flourishing. Uh, One of the things that happened in the 500 years of the development of the modern West is some slippage into uh, separability, a kind of excessive separability where one doesn't see oneself woven into the interests of others in society, one's own interests woven into this common good, but rather looks to one's own interests, one's own pocketbook, one's own firm, one's own political party. And any time you get a slide into too much separability or too much situatedness, humanity suffers. The reformation that you mentioned was part of a long process beginning 500 years ago uh, of increasing focus on the self, the separable self, the self extracted from common projects, the notion that we live with others in a common society and share a common future and have common aims and goals. We saw in this uh, in this era a um, actually a, a technological boom. We may not think of the 16th and 17th century that way, but in fact, relative to that era, it was a technological boom, giving um, 
people a, a sudden sense of uh, detached autonomy and control of nature rather than being situated in a divinely created system with nature and with others. The sudden boost in control over nature and with the individual's ability to determine what things mean, for example, to turn unpredictable nature into an obedient tool. And uh, as uh, Tillich wrote, Paul Tillich wrote, the great Protestant theologian, the synthesis between individual individuality and participation was dissolved. Protestantism played a role here, unintended, of course. Uh, it's one of the unintended consequences of the Protestant Reformation with its emphasis on the individual reading of, the, of Scripture the individual's mandate to come to a relationship with the divine and the mandate to develop a moral code falling onto the responsible individual. Now, on one hand, that is both democratic and self-reliant and produces many wonderful things. On the other hand, in synergy with this technological boost of a sense of uh, autonomy and control over nature and over one's situation rather than embeddedness in it. Protestantism synergistically interacted with these technological and transportation changes, communication changes, to boost the sense that we are each detached mm -hmm. and independent. It's the um, sense that we are on our own um, rather than embedded and can slide into being not only on our own, but for our own and contributed, this contributed historically along with many other factors uh, into an exaggerated separability where there's a kind of exit from the common good and not only an exit, but where that's considered natural and people are proud of it, mm -hmm. which leads to a lot of greed in economics, um, self-absorption, abandonment of those who need help, and alienation mm -hmm. from detachment from values and community. Mm -hmm. And taking it a step beyond that, it actually becomes a vice in the rhetoric of the period to be situated. I mean, talk a little bit about that, because I thought it was fascinating that you traced both Catholic and Protestant polemics against each other uh, to a sort of identification of situatedness as a defect rather than a, an inherent characteristic of human existence. I'm not sure I traced Catholic rhetoric in particular, or Protestant rhetoric in particular, oh, okay. but, but rather um, the idea that over the centuries of early modernity, there were many factors that I've just outlined, some of them improved improvements in technology, in transportation. You could now travel, you could trade much farther, you could gain control of the oceans, you could gain control of, of electricity, of steam, you were on top of nature. Um, mm -hmm. You were making the world bend to 
um, human will. Uh, as I get major improvements in longevity, health, standards of living emerged from this. And Protestantism, as I said, with its emphasis on the individual mandate to read the Bible and establish a moral code, further emphasized this sense of the the foregrounding of the role of the individual. Many good things come from this, including human rights. Are human rights attached to the individual, regardless of community and background? Very important. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, as is often the case in life, things aren't only good or bad. There were downsides to this emphasis or this foregrounding of the individual. And that's the thinning of the concern for our reciprocal impact and reciprocal responsibility. If we are indeed creatures who are both differentiated individuals and yet who become our differentiated selves through our relations, then we must account for our reciprocal relations and our reciprocal responsibility in our public policies and in our practices. I think right there is the thesis of the book If we fail to account for the way we are as creatures, both separate yet situated, then we will have much less human flourishing than if we went with the grain of the way we are, the way we've been created. Mm -hmm. Well, since I've already swung and missed once, uh, you know, identifying your project as a dialectic one, would it be closer to the mark to say that, you know, you are doing something in the neighborhood of an Aristotelian project where a deficiency of separate uh, separability, pardon me, uh, is one sort of vice, but the solution to it is not to go to an excess, but to find some sort of balance between the two. Uh, let, let me suggest rather than dialectical balance, the mm-hmm. idea of mutual constitution. Okay. It, it is, It's not that we have separability or our distinct selves, the ability to leave past and neighbor. And on the other side of the seesaw, we have our embeddedness and we want to keep a balance. I submit that we don't have separability or or individuality without our situatedness. They constitute each other simultaneously. Mm -hmm. Our relations make us who we individually are. It sounds ironic. And yet it appears to be the stance, not only of relational theologies, which is what most of Commonwealth and Covenant is about, Mm -hmm. but also uh, seems to be the position of quantum physics, evolutionary biology, and current neurochemistry. We are simultaneously unique, but develop our uniqueness through our relations. If you'd like, I can go through some of those examples from the sciences for um, listeners who might be skeptical, um, but that's your call. Well, actually, one one figure that you discussed that I think would be good medicine for the skeptical reader is Adam Smith, because he is, in a lot of ways, the uh, patron saint of those who would promote a sort of, you know, excessive separability in in the terms of this book. And yet you have a very good discussion in Commonwealth and Covenant of a balance in Adam Smith's work that emerges if we actually pay attention to both of his major works instead of just The Wealth of Nations. Could you talk about that for a moment? 
Thank you. Um, Adam Smith understood markets as valuable because they enabled the common man and in his vision, less woman, but we can update that for today. Uh, the certainly, common man certainly. And woman, <laughs> uh, at, that it enabled the common man and woman entry into the economy as, mm. a, as opposed to a situation where the nobility had a stranglehold on land and resources. Markets were open and commoners could get in. This is the great 18th century support for markets. It's a democratizer of opportunity. And that's what Adam Smith supported. He wasn't alone. Economists in Italy, Antonio Genovese, for example, had the same view of markets. It allows commoners in and democratizes opportunity and upward mobility. However, both people like Genovese and Adam Smith understood that markets must be situated in the mores and practices of the community in order to function. So mores and practices of promise keeping, truth telling, fairness, just rewards for, ju for work are the moral uh, standards by which markets have to run. So it's not the picture that we often have today that our economics runs society. It's rather the picture that our economics are embedded in the relationships and moral codes of society. And Adam Smith recognized that without this, capitalism makes workers dull and abuses them and undermines the mores of society and encourages the rich to undermine the moral behavior of uh, uh, everyone else. He wrote that in markets, as in all of society, each person, I'm quoting now, should endeavor as much as he can to put himself in the situation of the other and to bring home to himself every little circumstance of distress which could possibly occur to the sufferer, close quote. Um, that's Adam Smith's version of the golden rule, right? You must mm -hmm. imagine to yourself how everybody else in the factory is feeling and put to yourself what could possibly be afflicting each sufferer. So he was imagining the tremendous wealth building capacity of markets embedded in the moral codes of society. As he aged, he became a critic of English capitalism at the time, precisely because it wasn't following the moral codes of ethics and fairness and promise keeping, it was devolving into a lot of exaggerated separability, self-absorption and greed, cheating, lying and the abuse of workers. Conditions for workers in late 18th century England were appalling. Mm -hmm. Well, it's fascinating because, again, the way that we sometimes tell the story of the 18th century is that it was the capitalist Adam Smith against the sort of romantic poetic impulse to elevate the common person. Uh, but I think your account, your account of things does well to note that 
Adam Smith wanted to hold the common person as supremely important within that system. It's not as if he needed that correction. It's his later heirs that needed that correction. Is that a fair account? Adam, I I find that Adam Smith has been atrociously misread in the last mm -hmm. 50, 60 years under the influence of certain contemporary schools of, of economics, which is not fair to either theory of moral sentiments or the wealth of nations. It's not mm -hmm. fair to Adam Smith. Um, read correctly today, actually read today as he wrote his texts. He would be, uh, he makes an argument for community, state and, and government working together to preserve um, moral standards of the markets which should be embedded into community ethics, not the other way around. Very not, good. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, listeners to Christian Humanist Profiles know that uh, I, Nathan Gilmore, I'm always talking about Alistair McIntyre. So when I encountered McIntyre in this book, I was quite pleased to see that he made the, uh, the roster of thinkers that you dealt with. Uh, talk for a moment about how McIntyre's project relates to your own. How does he do battle with that sort of excessive separability, and how does your project overlap with his, and how does yours differ from his? Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, the project of Commonwealth of Covenant, of course, is to sketch out this um, this relationality, as, as we've said um, a number of times the separable person developing through manifold layers of relations, bringing um, layers of responsibility. Uh, and I sketch it out uh, using uh, the wisdom and relying on the wisdom of philosophers as well as theologians. So there's mm -hmm. intellectual history and philosophy and theology, relational theology in, in the book. McIntyre is one on, as you say, on of the thinkers participating because the major concern of his work throughout his life was to take a good hard look at where we are at the time of his writing, late 20th century, mm -hmm. uh, and to notice, as, as I have, that we seem to have slipped gradually over the last four or five hundred years into a fairly uh, exaggerated sense of separability, and that this brings tremendous downsides to it. Um, he, too, thinks that the person is constituted by uh, our relations. This is a famous point of his in his work, that he is who he is because he is someone's son, someone else's uncle, someone else's colleague, someone else's um, uh, spouse, etc. Uh, and not only these, as we say, nearby relations, but also he is who he is, by dint of the economic policies set by his and other governments, by the healthcare policies set, by the educational policies and opportunities set, and so on. So it's not only our nearby relations. This is a primary uh, aspect of McIntyre's work, as it is in my in my own, and therefore he he makes a claim similar to my own that given that we are distinct creatures developed by our relations near and far, we have to take account of that in our policies. Otherwise, we 
run into the disadvantages of exaggerated separability, greed for me and mine only, for my firm, my party, um, with uh, a diminution of concern for the common good and our common future. You know, there's a, I mentioned <coughs> biology before, but um, uh, there, I'd like to talk a little bit, if I may, uh, about some of the contributions uh, that physics and uh, biology have made to our understanding of our separability and our situatedness. Mm -hmm. um, I'd like to mention, for example, the neurobiologist Darcia Narvaez, who writes in her award-winning book on human neurochemistry and neurobiology, that to approach eudaimonia, to approach a flourishing. We have to have some idea of the baseline of what human beings are. Mm -hmm. We need to know what the creature is like to build structures that enable humanity to flourish on this planet. And that's what I think separability amid situatedness is. That's the way we are. We are separate, distinct spe uh, creatures who become who we are through relations. So in order to develop economic policies, political policies, we need to take that into account. We are affected by the situation of the people around us, including those people we don't see. But mm -hmm. we are impacted by them as they are impacted by us. And so we have reciprocal responsibility. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's a, a great segue into the specifically theological section of the book. Um, you, you really lay out how the dis distinction amid relation is central to the character of God and that therefore the image of God or the human species uh, really, I mean, our nature flows from that. So, I mean, keep rolling with that. I mean, how do those philosophical and biological realities inform the way that we think about theology? Uh, well, I think, of course, physics and biology are the new kids on the block. Uh -huh. and they're <laughs> finally catching up to some of the grand principles that our wisdom traditions have been teaching for millennia. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to try to roll this out in a, in a couple of steps, um, starting with what uh, the cause of causes God is, and then what we are. So bear with me as I try to go through this step by step. So the, the cause of causes, the reason that there is something rather than nothing. I mean, there could be nothing, but there mm -hmm. is something. And the reason that there is something and the particular things that there are, balloons, molecules, dark matter, quanta, the reason that there are all these particular things that there are and that there is anything at all is what some people called God, other people called the cause of causes, or a structuring cause, and so on. Uh, every existing thing, including every person, must have something of the cause of existence, 
in it, I'm speaking metaphorically, in it, in order to exist. Mm -hmm. We have to have something of the cause of existence in order to exist. But I think we also all recognize that we are radically different, of a radically different order from whatever it is that causes everything to exist. The cause of causes, God. We are very different. We are material, whatever that is, is immaterial. We are finite, whatever that is, is infinite, and so on. So we have a situation where we must have intimately within us something of the cause of existence in order to exist. On the other hand, we are very different from that divine cause of causes, which means that we are at once very separate from the cause of causes God and yet in intimate relation so intimate that something of the cause of existence is in us. Mm -hmm. Separateness, yet relation, is the structure of existence on the view of the relational theologies that I'm relying on. We are very separate from the cause of causes, and yet in intimate relation with the cause of existence in order to exist. So separateness, yet relation, is the structure of existence. Aquinas said this beautifully, that God acts intimately in each of us. Mm -hmm. If the structure of existence is separation or separability in relation, that means that humanity and society is also a matter of separateness in relation, because that's the structure of existence. And this is the theological voice, so to speak, for what we were talking about earlier, separability and situatedness. The structure of existence is separability amid relation or situatedness. That's the way this, uh, this existence that we know is structured. This is something now that the biologists and the physicists um, are confirming. Uh, we can look at... Uh, quantum physics, which now, for the last 50, 60 years, notes that uh, we don't exactly have, of course, distinct particles. We have particles whose subatomic particles, whose trajectories are influenced by the trajectories of other subatomic particles, mm -hmm. whose... Um, uh, so there you have, you have distinction again amid relation. Uh, we have particles once, which once they interact with each other, carry the traces, as uh, physicist Carlo Rovelli writes, of all the other particles with which they have interacted. And as we know again from post-quantum physics, if you impact one particle, the result, the effect, appears instantly in the other particle over hundreds of kilometers of distance. Mm -hmm. So we have a world of distinct entities that are in continuous intimate relationship with each other. That's the structure of the, of the physical being. If, um, and notice both distinction and relation are accounted for, right? If you didn't have distinct particles, matter 
um, would collapse. But yet each, what we see as each distinct particle is actually itself through its relationships with the relationships are sometimes talked about as sort of the wave feature of mm -hmm. particles. We know we don't have particles and waves. They kind of all sometimes uh, we're not sometimes they they morph into each other and physicists are competing for explanations about that. But uh, what what we have is sort of quasi particles um, exist in terms of their relations and impact with other quote particles or waves. Mm -hmm. um, this is a long physical um, discussion, which I've just reviewed very carefully on the bio, uh, very, excuse me, very um, briefly um, <laughs> on the biological front. Um, it, we know that the uh, neurochemicals of uh, the human, of the human body um, don't develop only by the genes that uh, determine uh, uh, by DNA, rather the genes develop by the interactions that each person has with the outside, um, with the outside environment. Uh, each each event in a baby's life and in an adult's life causes, as we know, certain neurochemical reactions to happen in a certain sequence, which um, creates a response to that event. So if you have, let's say, a child that is exposed to a lot of fearful and angry situations, those neurochemical pathways are facilitated creating a greater likelihood that that child will interpret the world as a fearful and um, anger-ridden place. We have facilitated pathways. They, would, <clears throat> they can be corrected by, by changing the interactions in the environment. What's the takeaway from this research? That even our gene um, genetic settings um, are in constant interaction with the relationships um, and the uh, the relationships and the experiences that we have. We are individuals, but we developed literally, biologically in relation. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm glad to report that physics and biology are um, coming around to the theological principles that we are distinct, differentiated beings who come into our distinctness through our relations. So you find it in theology millennia ago, and you find it in quantum physics today and in the neurochemistry of human brain development. Mm -hmm. And, you know, listeners, I mean, in case you miss some of that, I mean, one of the most... Uh, profound and, and frankly baffling parts of that is that the relationships among particles that Dr. Pally just summarized actually transcend distance. If you think of light speed as the fastest that anything can cause anything else to happen, these relationships function basically as primary particles, if you will, so that even, you know, as she said, hundreds of kilometers apart, these relationships among particles can affect each other faster than our standard ways of thinking cause and effect could actually make them happen. 
Is, I mean, is, is that a – did I get you right there? Uh, yeah, there's a – as I said, physicists are competing for the explanation. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for, for why – um, for why at the subatomic level there seems to be substantial evidence uh, over the last, again, 50, 60 years of numerous experiments for, and here I'm going to speak anthropomorphically again, for mm -hmm. communication, mm -hmm. right? Communication among subatomic particles. And we're not sure how this works yet and there are a wide variety of explanations. But let me, let me, so the, uh, uh, Wechter McNelly writes that in the, quote, entangled world of quantum physics, each particle is free to behave according to its own nature. And yet its entanglement with another particle allows it to act in concert with its entangled partner in a way that cannot be inferred from the presumption of full separability of individual states. Mm -hmm. um, Carlo Rovelli concludes, he, another physicist, quote, we must accept the idea that reality is only interaction. All things, distinct things, all things are continually interacting with one another. And in doing so, each bears the traces of that with which it has interacted, even across hundreds of kilometers of distance. So Einstein's spooky action at a distance is the way matter and energy operate. Einstein was aware of this and was suspicious of this. He mm -hmm. we, we was aware <laughs> of this of this subatomic particle apparent interaption. And and at that time, a hundred years ago, no one could quite figure out how that was working. And he called it spooky action at a distance, right? One <laughs> one subatomic particle affects another mm -hmm. across large distances. It doesn't make any sense. Um, now, a hundred years later, after um, about half a century of experiments of sending random, uh, generating uh, what should be random particles that should produce random patterns of directionality and so on, they don't produce random patterns. Mm -hmm. And so physicists are now trying to unpack the nature of the communication between our subatomic particles, which is the way, um, well, it is the way the world we know is structured. At the human level, we too are different. And yet, as we know, thinking about our lives, we are who we are through our interactions, and not only as developing infants, but also in our lives as adults. We, we have opportunities we opportunities are close to us. We experience frustration, joy, possibility, success, all of things, these things developed in interaction with all the people who affect us, make us who we develop into continually through our lives. So the argument in Commonwealth and Covenant is uh, that this is not only a philosophical musing on the way we are, mm -hmm. but we have to take this account into account in our policies. And if we have policies that emerge from an exaggerated sense of situatedness, we will have a lot of top-down control 
and a lot of pernicious conformity and not enough wiggle room for the creativity and talent of the individual mind and person. On the other hand, if we have um, policies emerging from a, a notion of excessive separability, me for me and mine only, my firm, my party, etc., we will cease our reciprocal responsibility and we will thin our contribution to the common good and common pool, uh, the common pools of resources that society, each of us together in society, needs. It's in, uh, in some sense to lock oneself up in one's gated bubble community on the belief that one will escape from the results of the neglect of the common good. The world apparently doesn't work that way, and mm -hmm. our theological traditions have been telling us that we have reciprocal impact and reciprocal responsibility. Mm -hmm. And the way that you frame that when you talk about a theology of sin is that sin is the refusal to invite God to world. So, I mean, keep rolling in that direction because I think our listeners will benefit. Uh, when we think about sin in relational terms that way, uh, what sorts of questions and what sorts of possibilities open up for that public realm? Okay, so you've asked two things there. Sin, yes, indeed. <laughs> sin and public realm. Um, so let's start with sin, always a, an enticing subject. Um, on relational theologies, on this understanding of the world, um, sin is the refusal to have relationship with God and relationship with others because mm -hmm. the two are entangled. Re uh, let's, let's bring in the term covenant here. Okay. The reciprocal bond between two distinct parties, each giving for the flourishing of the other and for the flourishing of the relationship because it's the relationship in both the short and the long run that move things forward. That's what covenant is. Now, our covenantal relations um, with each other, our accounting for each other, our taking responsibility for each other, is what, on relational theologies, is part of what constitutes our bond and covenant with God. Simultaneously, it is our bond with God that enables us to have covenantal, responsible relationships with others. Uh, the two covenants with the cause of causes, God, the divine, and our covenant with each other are mutually consti constituted. The mm -hmm. famous passage in John expresses this very well. On one hand, John says, he who does not love this brother or sister who he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Yeah, if we are not loving to our brothers and sisters, you cannot say you love God. On the other hand, John says also, we love because God first has loved us. Mm -hmm. Our covenantal love with God enables us to be loving and covenantal to others. So we've got two covenants, so to speak, two sets of loving relations, responsible, reciprocally responsible relations, one between us and the cause of causes God, 
which enables us to be covenantal and responsible for each other, which in turn is a reflection of our covenant with God. You can't get one without the other. Sin, to go back to the enticing topic, is a refusal of this. Mm -hmm. It is a refusal of responsibility for other people and for our situation together, which on the view of John and the view of most theologians in both the Christian and Jewish traditions um, is part of our relationship with God and our relationship with God enables us gives us, in fact, in the Jewish tradition, it's called Dmut Elohim, or moral correspondence in the Christian tradition, the moral correspondence and capacity to act relationally with others. So our, our being in a, in a covenantal relationship with God enables us to act covenantally in world, and our actions covenantally in world are reflections of our bond and covenant with God. Mm-hmm. Sin is a rejection of this. And, and the relational theologies that I'm writing about in Commonwealth and Covenant say, if you do not take a responsibility and have a loving covenant uh, to others, you can't be in a covenantal relationship with God, just as John says. Mm-hmm. And that's that is a sinful rejection of the way we are. It's a rejection of the created way we are. It's a rejection of the cause of causes and how we have been set up by the cause of causes God set up. Um, it's a violation of our setup. Mm-hmm. And that would be sin. So... The second half of your question was the public sphere. Yes. Hmm. So how are we behaving in the public sphere? Hmm. How are we doing in setting up educational opportunities for young people at all socioeconomic levels? How are we doing setting up job training and job retraining for when people lose their jobs? How are we doing in regional redevelopment when cities or entire counties or regions become left behind areas as old industries move to low-wage companies? How are we doing on societal investment in those regions in developing new 21st century um, industry and retraining people to suit those industries? How are, we, how are we doing in our responsibilities to each other? How are we doing providing um, uh, nutrition and health care for all children and the parents who care for those children? Those would be arenas of reciprocal responsibility. Now, you asked about the public sphere, mm-hmm. and of course this sounds like the basics for a political program, but I, but note that the basics for a political program come from our um, created setup. It comes from the way we are. Um, so I'll go back to a remark I made a moment ago. We have to account for the way human beings are 
in the world to promote human flourishing. We have to create programs that respond to and reflect the way um, we creatures have been created to be. And that's a position not only of the theologians um, I've mentioned and I mentioned in Commonwealth and Covenant, but also of the biologists. So um, that book reviews the biology and also the evolutionary biology and the physics and the theology. The theology in the book has the heavy hand. It's mostly about philosophy and theology, mm -hmm. but um, the physics and the biology are in support. Mm -hmm. And I think, honestly, part of the appeal of the approach of Commonwealth and Covenant is that it avoids what I think of as a vice in the way that so many Christians talk about, for instance, poverty as sort of a um, an inevitable, you know, Greek tragedy sort of reality that is inescapable for us mere mortals. Uh, the way that you account for poverty and for the neglect of the young and for all of the things that you just talk to us about uh, is in terms of that refusal to invite God to world, in other words, in terms of sin, so that sin doesn't become something that is relegated to a private realm and doesn't have anything to do with how we relate to each other as communities beyond the nuclear family, but it really is a possibility uh, and a possibility that needs saving in every realm of human life from the individual all the way out to the global. Um, as I said before, I mean, you know, the what suggests, what recommends this approach, I'll put it that way, is precisely that it does talk about God and talk about sin and does talk about these theological realities as encompassing realities rather than relegated to one slice of that pie, if you will. Jesus was building an ecclesia, not a gated community. Mm -hmm. The ecclesia is not only the nuclear family or those whom you can um, see around you immediately. Um, the genius of the vision of the ecclesia is our reciprocal impact far extended out and our responsibility for bringing covenantal relations, community, generosity, thinking in the long term for the flourishing of all involved. That's the genius of the vision of the Ecclesia. Mm -hmm. And we need to think about what that means in our modern world. Mm -hmm. Can and I bring up the issue of gift exchange for a minute? Please do. Um, gift exchange is, um, is a societal practice that accords very well with the vision of the Ecclesia. It's not that I give you a gift and then you give me a gift. It's gift exchange is uh, a ritual of societal cohesion, loyalty, and responsibility. It is the idea that um, the, the giver, in giving an item to a recipient, often an item of trivial economic value, a shell, a, uh, um, is giving something of the spirit of the giver in the gift, the spirit of commitment, loyalty, affection, support. 
So A gives to B. B doesn't give back to A. B gives to C. Mm-hmm. And sometimes down the road, C gives to D, D gives to E, etc. You get um, the picture of a gift exchange loop or network would be a better word. Um, a network of the giving of support, loyalty, affection, which serve to sustain uh, many societies over vast distances, for example, on the Pacific Islands, over very long periods of time of allegiance and support. This is a one way of thinking about the ecclesia. Um, people like the uh, Marcel Mauss at the end of the 19th century and Lewis Hyde in the mid-20th century have written a great deal about gift exchange societies. It's kind of a nice way to think about or the ecclesia. Mm-hmm. And often today, uh, people are quick to say, oh, well, that's not appropriate for um, the modern era when we no longer live in tight-knit communities where you can sort of see the, the, the spirit of the gift going from person to person. Mm-hmm. But that's not how gift exchange networks worked. Gift exchange networks worked across vast differences and time. And I think we should not let ourselves off the hook in terms of our reciprocal responsibility Uh, in terms of our covenant or gift exchange. We should not allow ourselves to say that with Skype and Instagram and WhatsApp, (laughs) and we cannot accomplish what people accomplished in canoes. Mm -hmm. Very good. Well, I think that's an excellent segue to a statement that really, I mean, frames your book in my mind, or at least as I read it. Uh, And I can't help but quote it here. It's from page 19 of your book. Quote, the theology of the way things are yields an ethics of how not to mess things up, close quote. You've mentioned this a couple times before, but I wanted to get the the phrase as I read it because I enjoyed it so much. As we approach the end of this conversation, what are a few recent events, whether in national politics or the academic world or whatever else, that stand to do better if we approach them with a mind not to mess them up? Large question. I, uh, I, I want to say an optimistic and a dismaying thing. Okay. I think on the one hand, on the optimistic side, most people for most of the days of their lives, in fact, live and act in a world of separability amid situatedness, that they act fairly decently and with consideration for those around them. Think of all the possibilities that each of us has to lie, cheat, maybe steal a little, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, pressure, abuse, humiliate somebody else during the day. And most of us don't do it. On the optimistic side, I think that the the, uh, most of us actually do behave going with the grain of our setup of separability amid situatedness, that we are reciprocally responsible for each other. We get it from the way we live in the world. Mm -hmm. I think 
Um, on the other hand, we have in the modern era slipped into a culture of excessive separability. Um, this happens also to be some of the views of some of the um, biologists that are mentioned in the book, um, because the practices of any culture actually affects, as we said before, your neurochemistry. In a highly competitive society, that will produce facilitated pathways of aggression and competition at the neurobiological level. And I think we have, uh, for some of the technological uh, reasons and other, other cultural reasons over the last 500 years, slipped into uh, a period where we have a lot of me and my thinking, mm -hmm. um, rather than a lot of covenantal reciprocal responsibility thinking in all arenas, in our economic policy, in our healthcare policy, in our investment in infrastructure, research and development, education, in the way we attempt to solve global problems like trade. We do have to think about, uh, for example, developing nations. We can't um, have an ostrich economic policy. We stick our head in the sand and we hope that we're not going to be affected by failed states, societal breakdown in other countries, economic collapse, mass disease in other countries. We. Uh, then you asked uh, an event, uh, sort of a world event that I might be thinking of. Look at the refugee crisis. Mm -hmm. If those, if um, the countries of those people were flourishing and building and being able increasingly to provide opportunity for the flourishing of the talent and intelligence and creativity of their populations, we wouldn't be having a refugee crisis. We have 60-something million refugees in the world now. That's not the beginning of the story. That's the end of the story. The story begins with the neglect of those societies and the people in those societies. That leads eventually to societal breakdown at the economic or military or health level that produces refugees. Mm. We can't hide from each other because the setup is the creation, existence is a matter of ourselves in relation. We need to get a handle on that. We need to understand we cannot hide from our situatedness, from our relatedness. It comes, if you, you know what happens if you ignore a situation, um, uh, it accumulates, it grows and comes back and thwacks you in the back of the head, right? Mm -hmm. What happens if you ignore um, the first symptom of a problem, right? Mm -hmm. Six months later, you have a major illness, right? We know about preventive, preventative um, disease control. Uh, so we can't hide from small system symptoms and we can't hide from each other. We have to take responsibility. Um, for those near and for those extending out. Because as you know, with the mobility of people, microbes, goods and ideas, the globe is affecting the neighborhood in any case. Mm -hmm.
Well, Dr. Pally, I have been at the wheel for most of this conversation, so in the spirit of hospitality, I want you to have the last word. What do you want our listeners thinking about theology, economics, mutual constitution, or whatever else as we head for the door? Well, perhaps I have just summed it up. I've made a a case uh, from physics, from biology, and from theology that we are distinct, talented individuals who become that way through our relations, and that yields reciprocal responsibility for the structures, the relationships that make people develop as they can. And this then is, I believe, a basis for our economic and political policies. Here's a closing thought. Uh, In order to write Commonwealth and and Covenant, I uh, did look at um, economics and political proposals. We have libraries of relationally minded economic proposals and trade proposals, political proposals, healthcare, education proposals that attempt and often succeed to take into account our our reciprocal responsibility. The take into account our setup as separable individuals in situations, in relations. We have volumes of these but they lack the popular and political will, and so they are not implemented. And that's sin. So I would make a case for a shift in our understanding of the world to separability amid our situatedness, such that it really becomes part of the culture, part of the popular will, and therefore the political will. Imagine a world where that's just what people did. It wouldn't occur to anybody else to think about economics in any other way. For example, uh, imagine a world where um, uh, a logging firm where the shareholders and the workers, of course, want to keep cutting down trees for both profits and jobs, which conflicts with uh, both local and global environmental concerns. Uh, now, that's that's a complicated problem. Um, imagine a world where, in order to solve it, people involved sat down and where nobody gets up from the table until the concerns and hopes and plans of all involved are heard, and where accounting for that, all of those concerns, is brokered into the solution, where it wouldn't occur to anybody to do anything else, where it wouldn't occur to anybody to get up and leave the table or strong arm or pressure or threaten. Joel Hunter, he was a very, one of the wisest men I know, um, uh, asks us to think about this question. In solving problems, first thing to do is find out why the other side is for the other side and broker that into problem solving. 
So that's what I think needs to become our worldview. We are separate, we are distinct, but find out why those separate, distinct other people are for the other side. And everybody reciprocally take responsibility for brokering that into problem solving. That seems to be to take our our physics, our biology, and our theological wisdom into account, and to take into account our separateness amid our situations. Ask why the other side is for the other side. Marsha Pally, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. It was a pleasure to be here. And listeners, thank you for downloading and for listening in with us. The Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I am Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.